but we're not allowed to travel at the moment, so I thought in church we could take you to the Caribbean anyways.
we get back to our Bible narratives, we're going to be having a look at Samson, and he's the last character we'll be looking at out of the book of Judges. Now, there are four chapters. They're reasonably short from Judges chapter 13 through to Judges 16, and I really do encourage you to go home and to read them. In those uh, four chapters, <clears throat> we'll find some distinct stories, and I know that each story is in itself uh, worthy of many sermons. So, it's going to be quite a challenge to, to, to crunch all four chapters into just this morning. Um, and I know that many of you know most of these stories, so it will just be a matter of reminder. But for those of you who don't know the stories, I really encourage you to go and have a look. Samson is a real, really complex, very complex hero. In fact, we could call him an anti-hero <laughs> because everything he does, basically, we shouldn't do. But in spite of what he does, we almost find ourselves rooting for him. I don't know how many of you have watched Pirates of the Caribbean and seen the Jack Sparrow character. I mean, he's, he's like an anti-hero, but, but we find ourselves willing him on. <laughs> and that's really the case with Samson too. Don't follow Samson's example, but man, we're glad that he did, <laughs> he did what he did. Anyway, let's go to Judges chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at a couple uh, verses from each story, and then I'll just be sharing in between some lessons for us to learn this morning. I don't know what's happening here. I'm not going anywhere. <clears throat> huh? There we go. Okay. No, it's still something's not so lucky. Sorry about this. While we're looking at this, just welcome to those people who have joined us on Facebook at home. And just have a look. Maybe it's the batteries or something. Otherwise, make a plan. Judges chapter 13, verse 1 to 5. Eventually, it'll come up. There it is. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We saw that phrase over and over and over again throughout our, our <clears throat> passage through Judges. It's just this relentless cycle of people serving the Lord and then falling into sin and uh, being called back to repentance by the judge whoever that judge is at the time, and then people repenting and God forgiving them and restoring them again. So the same old cycle continues. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 
A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. An angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Let's just pause a little bit and have a look at this concept of the Nazarite. The Nazarite vow you can read of in in Numbers chapter 6 and it basically uh, provides three instructions for those who take it or those upon whom it is given. Firstly, they are to abstain from all wine and anything else made from grapevine, uh, to refrain from cutting the hair on one's head and also not to become ritually impure by contact with corpses or with graves. Samson's uh, uh, Nazarite vow was made on his behalf by his parents, and we see him systematically dismantling every facet of that vow. So he doesn't keep any element of that vow at all, (laughs) although he is this Nazarite. Now, the vow could also, as I mentioned, be permanent or also temporary. Um, people have asked me the question before, is, uh, was Jesus a Nazarite? No, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He came from Nazareth, which made him a Nazarene. But we have no proof in the scripture of Jesus taking a Nazarite. In fact, quite the opposite. We see Jesus in his first miracle turning water into wine. He's accused of being a drunkard. Uh, we see him grabbing the little girl's hand who's dead. <laughs> He's not allowed to touch a corpse. But Jesus himself breaks all of those, um, those uh, constructs for a Nazarite or Nazarite vow. Just by the way, all of the pictures that you've seen of Jesus with long hair are also incorrect because the only reason Jesus would have had long, long hair is because he was a Nazarite. Otherwise, he would have had a hair-shaped of the hair at the time, which would have been a neat hairstyle. Amen? (laughs) Go and do the study, and you'll find out it's true. Anyway, first lesson that we're going to pull out this morning is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. The scripture simply says, a man, a certain man of Zorah, named Manoah from the clan of Danites, who had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. Ordinary people, ordinary folks, no fancy heritage, just usual everyday people. His wife doesn't even get a name. She gets a title, and her title is barren. Okay, so she's just, this is just a normal everyday couple, not from any fancy priestly lineage, or they, they're just not fancy people, they're normal people with everyday struggles as parents, and we'll see some of those struggles now. In Judges chapter 14 from verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah. There he saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. (laughs) I mean, this is a little brat. Now get her for me. His mother and father replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman from among your relatives 
or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? I mean, you can just hear the pain in their own hearts. They know that they had been chosen to bring up a Nazarite who would uh, deliver their people from the Israelites. And here's this guy who's he's behaving completely out of where he should be. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one. Then in verse 4, we see that in brackets. And it's just like a little side note, a, commentate, a, a commentary that's given by the author. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Get me. Just get her for me. You can hear the brat in this young guy's life. Maybe because uh, she had been barren, they had spoiled him so badly. I don't know what it would have been or why, what the reason would have been, but he has a real teenage brat, Manoah and his wife, ordinary people encountering teenage strife and struggle. Again, God uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. Are you feeling ordinary this morning? Are you feeling this morning perhaps like God can't use you? I want to tell you, be encouraged from the story of Samson. See, there's lots of can'ts in the church. I think these can't actually be won'ts. I've been doing this long enough to know that a can't actually means I won't. I can't do this because I'm not able to do that. I can't because I don't have time. I can't because of this or I can't because of that. At the end of the day, it's mostly I won't. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it seems to work. If you are ordinary, then you're perfect. All that's needed is availability and humility. No special strength, no special ability, no special giftings, just an ordinary person. Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Maybe when you're feeling like really ordinary, when you're feeling like can't, when you're feeling like God can't use me, Pause to reflect on this incredible truth that this reflects upon when he says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. Amen? Lesson number two. Samson was strong on the outside, but inside he's pathetic. Strong on the outside. But inside, he's just pathetic. Major character flaws and weakness follow him throughout his life in spite of his enormous strength and ability to do seemingly impossible things. Inside, he was actually quite pathetic. If we carry on with the story in Judges 14 from verse 5, we see how he travels with his parents to meet uh, this woman that he wants. And on the way, a young lion attacks him. Bible says he literally ripped it apart with his bare hands. 
Sometime later, he's on the same road going back to marry that girl, and he sees some honey in that carcass. He eats some, he gives some to his parents, and then he uses the honey in the carcass as a riddle for his 30 groomsmen. I mean, this is a major wedding, not just one or two groomsmen. He's got 30 groomsmen that's lined up for him. And in Judges chapter 14, verse 12, it says the following, and he tells this riddle to his groomsmen. Let me tell you a riddle. If you can give me the answer, within the seven days of the feast, no ordinary party here, seven days of wedding party. Seven days. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a party of notes. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Now, they don't get the riddle. And when they don't, the Philistines come and threaten um, Samson's wife to be. They threaten to burn her, burn, it, burn her family out to, to destroy them. So she comes to Samson, Samson and she begs him, please, 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 you know, won't you tell me what's going on here? Samson eventually tells her and they tell him and well, he, they get the riddle obviously. And when they get the riddle, he realizes he's been deceived. He loses it and he goes down to Ashkelon he kills 30 men, kills them, takes their clothes off their dead bodies. So now he breaks his Nazarite vow again. Takes the clothes off the body and he takes their garments to his 30 groomsmen as payment for the bet that he's obviously just lost. So here we see again this guy, so strong on the outside, but inside he's actually quite pathetic. Isn't this just so like us sometimes? We look the part, we go to church, we might wear the bracelet, what would Jesus do? But inside things just aren't so lacquer. Perhaps we even present this flawless look to others. But when we're alone with our thoughts, things are just not the same. How do we match up with that this morning? How many people did you tell when you came to church, I'm five. But meantime, inside, you just tell. How many people have you presented as, to, to them as being just the most godly man or woman around? But meantime, you've just car and you slandered everybody you could possibly slander on the way to church. You know, we've got this, we've got this propensity to present this incredible image around. And yet either things are not good inside of us because we say they're good and they're not good, or we present them as being good, but really we're rotten inside. An extreme example of this, we find Jesus addressing the Pharisees when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. you like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, we are all like this in some way. We are all guilty sometimes of presenting something that isn't. But I think the secret is not to stay like this. 
Many times we cannot get out of the cycles in which we find ourselves. Cycles of slander, cycles of gossip, cycles of fear and anxiety. Maybe cycles of sexual sin or impure thoughts. Perhaps laziness or abuse of alcohol, etc., etc. Sometimes it's not possible for us to break free for ourselves. And that's the time we really need somebody we can trust. Somebody we can go to. Somebody we can work these things out with and trust God for the healing that we need. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Maybe your weakness is not even that, you know, I'm presenting this brave front. Maybe it's just that you feel you're entitled, like Samson did. Get me that woman. We have this the sense of God's got to do what God's got to do when I say he's got to do it. Lord, get rid of this virus now. I'm tired of COVID. Do away with it <laughs> now. <laughs> like I've seen some false prophets prophesying over the last while. I remember when first arrived, one of the most well-named men in um, Christendom went public and started declaring the end of COVID and within a week it would be gone and all sorts of stuff. And 18 months down the line, we're still on it. But maybe it's the sense of entitlement. Lord, you've got to do what I want you to do. I want this baby now. I want a new car now. I want this whatever relationship to work. I want it to work now. We are just so entitled. Perhaps it's that we love the world too much. As believers, we are set aside for God's purposes. And like Samson, we prefer the things of the world when the Bible says, do not be yoked together. So, Strong outside is really worth nothing unless we deal with what's inside. Strong outside means nothing. Let's continue. Samson goes back to get his wife and finds out she's been given to someone else. Now he's really cross. And in Judges chapter 15, Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. Then he fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. I mean, quite a character, this Samson. Philistines are now really buzzed up. And if you read the story by agreement, he's basically handed over to them. And then we read in Judges 15, verse 14, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. <laughs> And the chapter ends, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This brings me to lesson number three. Samson is clearly driven by his emotions. 
He's clearly driven by his emotions and not an unctioning from the Spirit of God. Time and time again, there is a woman at the center of his troubles. He seems to be driven by what he feels rather than in response to God's leading. So the question to us this morning, what drives us? What drives us in life, in our decisions, in our environment, in everything that we do? What drives us? The answer is actually quite simple to this. Nothing should actually drive you. <laughs> That's the answer. I, I don't believe that we should ever be driven, not internally or externally. The Bible makes it very clear that he has given us his spirit who leads us. So we really should become followers of his spirit, keeping in step with his spirit, and not driven by anything, not driven by a will to succeed, not driven by a desire to overcome, not driven by our emotions that are so powerful at times, but rather to be habitually being led by the Spirit of God in everything we do. An easy way to understand this is if the focus is on me, my wants, my needs, my comforts, then I'm most likely emotional, emotionally driven. If it's all about me, and don't fool yourself. Sometimes we get all uh, sacrosanct and we think we're just so holy and righteous and the reason I'm doing this is for the other person and that's why I'm, no, 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 no. If it's about me, if it's for my comfort, if it's for my emotions, if it's for me, then I'm probably being driven by my emotions and not being led by the Spirit. If my focus is on Jesus, if it's on his kingdom, then I'm probably on the right track. Samson meets Delilah a little bit further down the line. She's a Philistine. And the leaders realize that uh, him and her are together. And so they begin to bribe her to discover his secret. In Judges chapter 16 now from verse 5. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So this is a huge amount of money that's being offered to Delilah in order to trick Samson. So, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you be tied up and subdued. Now, where, where's Samson's brain? I mean, what, what, is he, what is he even thinking that he begins to inter... I mean, what person thinking with this head would even begin to entertain those thoughts? This doesn't make any sense to anyone. Anyway, she sulks and she whines and she blackmails through a process of seven fresh thongs, new ropes never used, weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with a pin. And each one of these occasions, he'll become as weak as any man. And each one of those occasions, the Philistines are waiting in the room. And she wakes him up and he jumps up and he just 
snaps the thongs and he snaps the ropes and he breaks the loom and you know it's just it's this is not this is not the secret to his strength he's playing with her but the fact that he's entertained it in the first place makes absolutely no sense anyway there's lots more nagging and eventually he tells her the secret of his strength judges 16 verse 21 then she said to him how can you say you love me <laughs> when you won't confide in me? Ladies, you are masters of this. How can you say you love me when you won't confide in me? I mean, she has proved herself three times over. Three times she's proved herself to be deceptive and wanting to engineer his downfall. Three times the Philistines, he wakes up and they're in his room. And he still proceeds to succumb to her wife. It just makes no sense at all. She says, this is the third time you have made a fool of me. <laughs> I mean, she, she blames him. It's your fault. You've made a fool of me. I mean, the fact that she hid the Philistines in the room, you know, she's not even referring to that. <laughs> Anyway, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Not even a single man brave enough to say amen here this morning. You're a bunch of Nanesia. What's going on? So he told her everything, verse 17. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth if my head were shaved my strength would leave me and i would become as weak as any man when delilah saw that she had told he had told her everything she sent word to the rulers of the philistines come back once more he has told me everything so the rulers of the philistines returned with the silver in her hand having put her to sleep on her having put him to sleep on her lap she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Ha! Ah, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his... I'll go out as before and shake myself free. And then some of the saddest words in the Bible. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they sent him to ground in the prison. What that meant is they would have tied a harness to his back, and he would have walked round and round in a circle as a donkey would have done. He did a donkey's job. And as he walked round and round and round, while they beat him or whatever they needed to do to keep him moving, the, the big stone in the center would ground the corn. Tragic story. Driven by his emotions, Samson loses everything. Friends, we've been given the spirit of truth to enable us, to live inside of us, to apply his word. We do not run on emotions. We do not run on emotions. We run rather with his spirit. I long for the day that we all grow up in Christ and begin a sentence, 
uh, starting with the, the Lord says in his word, not I feel or I feel you or I feel like. Nowhere in the scripture have we been given the right to exercise our emotions to indicate what God wants us to do or not want us to do. It's simply a matter of thus says the Lord. Does God say, don't get drunk? I feel like. Does God say, don't do this or don't do that or do this and don't do that? I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like doing that. Oh, that we would grow up to the place where we know what God has said and simply do what God tells us to do. Don't be driven by emotions like Samson. We continue as the story gets sadder before it gets gladder. We find a hall, Philistines, 3,000 of them, in fact, on their roof, gathered together to celebrate their God Dagon. All for Samson to tell from verse 25. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. I don't know what that would have meant because they didn't know that he was strong again. He wasn't going to go there to do tricks or mighty feats or anything else because otherwise they would have done something about his hair again. So I'm not sure what this would have been. Probably just downright humiliation. Bring the guy out that caused the Philistines so much trouble. Ha, ha, look at him. He's blind. He's pathetic. He's useless. He's unable to do anything. Ha, ha, hallelujah to our dog, our God, our dog, Dagon. Our God, Dagon, you know. They were celebrating their God. So here he is humiliated, blinded by his exterior prowess. He gave up everything for his emotional and physical lusts and in front of this jeering crowd he asks the servant who's holding his hand to position him where he could feel the pillars then the bible says the following then samson prayed to the lord O sovereign lord remember me O god please strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the philistine for my two eyes. Now, as a judge of Israel, this is one of only two prayers recorded of Samson. That's just like, it's like a shocker. It's like one of only two times we see in his whole life that he actually speaks to God. And that, that's like really weird to me. Uh, the first one was after killing those thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey, uh, and he was thirsty. And he basically says, oh, you let me kill all of these people, and now you're going to let me die of thirst. That was kind of his prayer. It was a prayer of arrogance and, come on, you've got to do something for me now. But now we see a prayer that's a little bit different, a prayer perhaps of humility. Verse 29, we read on, Samson reached towards the two pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might and down came the temple and, all the, and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Brothers and his whole family went down to get him. They brought him back. 
and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. This brings me to our last lesson this morning. Even in our failure, God still accomplishes his divine purposes. Even in our failure, God still accomplishes his divine purposes. That's how good God is. It's not a reason to drop God, but it gives us confidence for when we do. Samson's life and behavior, even though not under God's instruction, was still used for God's purposes. I've wondered often what things would have looked like if Samson was led by the Spirit of God and not just used by him. Imagine if Samson had done what God wanted him to do. How would things have been different? I mean, it's not God that led him down to the prostitute. It's not God that led him to, to choose a Philistine woman uh, and to carry on the way that he did, behave the way he did. So how would God have done that? I don't know. But this is the point. Even in our failure, God still accomplishes his divine purposes. In the midst of Samson's deception, his rage, his emotions, his lusts, etc., God still used them. And the point for me is this. The pressure is off. Even when we as human beings fail him, God will still accomplish his divine purposes. Philippians chapter 1 says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, one of my favorite verses, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That just takes it off. It takes the stress off. It takes the pressure off. It takes the struggle and the striving and the pain of my, my disappointing God, how often I let him down, how often I don't speak up for him, how often I misrepresent him, how often my thought life is not what it should be, how often I'm just a, a weak, pathetic worm. And yet the Bible tells me I can be confident of this fact that he who began a good work in me will continue it and to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Samson's last prayer was perhaps his very first prayer in humility out of his need. His ultimate purpose to rescue God's people from the oppressive Philistines was fulfilled the first time he actually prayed a prayer that meant something. Forget failure this morning. Forget this grace this morning. Forget being tossed about like we so often are in the waves, like a cork just bobbing from the side to do. Forget that. God will do what he wants to do. Rather, our call is to repent and to get with the program. And that program basically means love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love him with every fiber of your being. And do that to those around you as well. And that includes your parents that disappoint you. That includes your children that disappoint you. 
that carry on and do their own thing when you've taught them to do this thing and now they're doing that thing and you don't understand what's going on. And I mean, imagine how Manoah and Mrs. Manoah must have felt all their lives with their Nazarite-vowed vowed son who behaved like an absolute idiot most of the time. Pressure off. Pressure off. God's going to do what God's going to do. Let me summarize very quickly. Lesson number one, God uses ordinary. You're feeling ordinary, you're qualified. <laughs> you're feeling less than ordinary, you're probably more qualified. God wants to do something extraordinary with our ordinary. Secondly, a strong outsider is pointless. Get rid of that strong outside. It's, it's useless unless the inside is also strong. God's interested in what's inside, not what's on outside. You might be able to, to woo millions of people with your incredibly fancy abilities and gifts and talents and all the rest of it. But if the inside is rotten, you are rotten. Think about all of these famous pop stars, how many of them died before they fell of age. That they've drunk themselves to death or, or drugged themselves to death. People with talent that is just mind-blowing. That I sit and I listen to their skill as they play the piano or their guitars or their voices. And I just think, what would have happened if that gift and talent was used in the glory and service of God? But people who on the outside were just so fancy, but inside they were rotten. Friends, we don't have to stay as we are. We don't have to stay rotten. We can choose today to walk in a place of repentance and confession where we need to with one another and make sure that the inside is as strong as the outside. And thirdly, follow the Spirit, not with your emotions. What does the book say? doesn't matter what you feel. What does the book say? I don't feel like God loves me. Oh, grow up. Does the Bible say God loves you? Does God have to come and touch you on the back and say, I love you, my son? If he does, you've missed the plot. If the Bible says he loves you, then he loves you. If the Bible says you are not in condemnation, then there is no condemnation. What are you feeling condemned about? That's the problem. You're feeling. Let's move past. Let's move up. Let's move into maturity. And stop feeling. Oh, I feel. Don't feel. What does the book say? Just do what the book says and get on with life. Lesson number four. Pressure off. Even in our failures. Oh, how many times. I don't want to think about it. How many times I've let God down. And if I stay in that place, I will just become less and less and less. Repent. Get over it. Get on with it. God's going to do what God's going to do. With or without you, by the way, I'd rather he did it with me. <laughs> Lord, I want, you to come. I want you to do what you want to do in my life. I don't want you to do it without me like you had to do it basically without Samson. Lord, I want to do it with you. That's my heart's desire.